with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events. In order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth. And to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshlack. Coming up later in the program, environmental correspondent Zero Rose has an update on developments regarding regional forest protection efforts in a recent interview with Andy Mahler of Protect Our Woods following a public meeting in Paoli earlier this week with Senator Mike Brown and the U.S. Forest Service, where some 250 people showed up, with the vast majority of those that rose to speak expressing opposition to the Buffalo Springs log and burn forest plan as it currently stands. And now for your environmental reports. Last week, we reported on pesticide use in common produce and listed the dirty dozen. This week, we list the clean 15, as analyzed by the USDA and FDA. To refresh our memories, the list of the dirty dozen is repeated. In 2023, the dirty dozen are strawberries, spinach, kale, collard and mustard greens, peaches, pears, nectarines, apples, grapes, bell and hot peppers, cherries, blueberries, and green beans. The purpose of the Clean 15 list, which recommends 15 conventional fruits and vegetables least likely to contain pesticides. Indeed, nearly 65% of the samples of the 15 fruits and vegetables had no detectable pesticide residue at all. 2023's Clean 15 are avocados, sweet corn, pineapple, onions, papaya, frozen sweet peas, asparagus, honeydew melon, kiwi, cabbage, mushrooms, mangoes, sweet potatoes, watermelon, and carrots. There was a new addition to the list this year with carrots replacing cantaloupe. It is recommended that shoppers choose organic options from the Dirty Dozen if they are affordable and accessible. The Indiana Environmental Reporter provides an update on a very old issue, coal ash. News that toxic waste from the recent Nofort Southern train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, would be shipped to a landfill in Rochdale, Indiana, has rung alarm bells with everyone from local residents to Governor Eric Holcomb, who has ordered testing of the waste for possibly dangerous levels of dioxins. Yet an equally poisonous substance, present in far greater quantities in communities around Indiana, has received much less attention with the Indiana legislature refusing this session to even hear bills that would regulate its safe disposal, coal ash. The toxic material left over after burning coal for electricity has been found in groundwater at every Indiana facility where coal was burned for electricity, largely as a result of poorly regulated storage that has led to toxins seeping through the soil it contains harmful chemicals such as boron, lead, mercury, and arsenic and poses the possible risk of blood vessel damage, anemia, neurological and cardiovascular problems, as well as cancer in the skin, bladder, liver, and lungs. 
Indiana ranks 48th in water quality. We have 24,000 miles of rivers and streams that are contaminated to the point where a person could become ill by swimming. But the powerful, val- the powerful value a few dollars more than public health. The Indiana Capitol Chronicle reports environmental activists decried the legislative process for a bill introduced in the current session, saying it clearly benefited from the state some of the state's most powerful while harming the average Hoosier. Quote, It's shocking the extent to which the moneyed special interests are controlling the legislative process right now and dictating the outcomes, end quote, said Kerwin Olson with the Citizens Action Coalition. We are allowing the investor-owned utilities and others to run amok at the Statehouse, all to the detriment of consumers, our environment, and the public interest in general. The state's biggest utility and frequent campaign donor, Duke Energy, already called upon a court to review a crucial ruling less than 24 hours after the House passed and Governor Eric Holcomb signed a bill to recover unexpected additional costs from customers. Another bill making waves among environmentalists and consumer advocates is Senate Bill No. 9, which was changed to allow for utilities to recover unexpected additional costs from their customers. When Duke Energy paid more than it budgeted for during coal ash cleanup when trying to meet new federal regulations, it asked the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission to raise its rates for 2019. The agency approved the increase, but the state Supreme Court rejected it, saying it was retroactive rate-making and the utility lost $212 million. Testimony explicitly named Duke Energy, which serves approximately 890000 Hoosiers as an example of why utilities should be able to push these costs onto ratepayers. Under the new law, which originally was designed to slow the retirement of coal plants, retroactive rate increases can be passed. On Thursday, less than 24 hours after Holcomb signed the bill, Duke Energy filed a petition for a rehearing of the Supreme Court case in light of the legislature's guidance. On Twitter, Citizens Action Coalition Program Director Ben Inskeep called the bill, quote, another blank check to utilities and more rate increases to consumers, end quote. What all these moves proves is that Duke and other utilities can make mistakes and can pass the losses to customers. That's part of the picture when we compare our rates of 15 cents per kilowatt hour with that of a state that is better managed, Iowa. Iowa gets 60% of its power from wind, and the cost to customers is 11 cents. Plus that, Iowa has less coal ash to deal with, and wind does not cause cancer and asthma deaths. Searching the Indiana Election Division's campaign finance portal for Duke Energy's political contributions prior to January 1st of 2021 provided too many results and resulted in an error. Since that date, the utility has contributed $163,400 to various candidates, including bill authors Senator Gene Leasing and Senator Eric Koch, as well as bill sponsors Representative Ed Soliday and Representative Ethan Manning. To our dismay, the Indiana House pushed forward a bill reducing a few remaining state wetlands protections. The Indiana House Republicans defeated an attempt to remove language that weakened the few remaining state protections for wetlands in the state from a bill originally addressing on-site sewage systems. Senate Bill 414 
was originally a widely supported bill establishing statewide rules for the use of on-site residential sewage discharge disposal systems. But a last-minute amendment by Indiana Builders Association member and real estate broker, Representative Doug Miller, tightened restrictions on which wetlands could receive state protections. The bill will further degrade Indiana's wetlands. The 13-member Indiana Wetlands Task Force found that the loss of wetlands due to the legislation provided farmers and developers with short-term financial benefits at the cost of long-term flooding issues. We have now reached a tipping point with the loss of our wetlands. It's obvious our legislatures are taking Indiana in the wrong direction, all for the sake of the Indiana Builders Association, a powerful trade group and lobbying organization for the state's home building industry. Despite scientists' warnings, House Republicans passed a bill to boost fossil fuels amidst climate, change, climate crisis. Ten days after the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released the report synthesizing the findings of its sixth assessment cycle, warning that world leaders must slash greenhouse gas emissions by 60% by 2035 to have 50% chance to limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and staving off more severe climate impacts. The U.S. House of Representatives passed legislation to boost the burning of fossil fuels. Democrats have dubbed the bill the Polluters Over People Act and will likely succeed in blocking it for now, the New York Times reported. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, said it was dead on arrival and Biden has promised to veto it. The fossil fuel industry is flexing its muscle as if there are no consequences of climate change. History reveals that the current conditions are likely to cause catastrophic damage. Though there were no humans to witness the event, there was a climate long ago like what we have today. Back 3.5 million years ago, the atmosphere contained about 410 parts per million carbon dioxide. The CO2 was produced by volcanic action. Magma often contains high amounts of carbon, which oxidizes when magma encounters air. The air temperature was nearly what it is today, yet the oceans were about 60, for 60 feet higher than today. How can the same conditions cause either the current 9-inch rise or a 60-foot rise? The current rise is small because of a very rapid increase in atmospheric CO2. The ice melt has not caught up. The 60-foot increase came when conditions changed over millions of years. Think of glacial melt as baking a frozen lasagna a mile thick. It takes time for it to thaw. There is a lot of work now to determine how long it will take to melt all of the Arctic ice and most of the ice on Greenland. Indiana resembles Kentucky in many ways. Kentucky is dead last in solar wind or, or wind power. Indiana isn't far behind. Coal industry's influence, the power companies, and climate change denial pave the way for both states race to the clean energy bottom. Indiana's wind speeds and long periods of sunshine allowed for early significant wind and solar farm development. Kentucky continued investing in coal and hydroelectric. The attitude of Kentucky was expressed recently by Representative Richard White, a Republican from Eastern Kentucky, who argued for coal as a matter of religious faith. Quote, when God created this earth, he provided us with natural resources, and coal is one of them, end quote. 
The conclusion that coal is for the people leaves out any consideration that the earth has far more life than just humans. The entire earth is a gift that we are to manage well. Managing is a different activity than abuse. We are in the early stages of a mass extinction event that ultimately could eliminate 25% of all species on earth. Yet, there is virtually no effort to stem that event. Species that do not adapt to the con new conditions are candidates for extinction. And now, Zero Rose speaks with Andy Mahler of Protect Our Woods, an initiative of the Indiana Forest Alliance. We're joined today by Andy Mahler, a former host of Interchange on WFHB, and he's a founder and organizer of Protect Our Woods, which has been around since 1985. We're, we're talking about uh, the Buffalo Springs Restoration Project to log and burn uh, the Hoosier National Forest. And there was just a uh, meeting yesterday in Paoli. Uh, it, is it still the, the scenario that that's the final public meeting uh, for public input? Well, that's a good question because uh, what's interesting is that they, uh, the reason the meeting was organized was specifically to provide additional opportunity for public comment on the Buffalo Springs proposal, but about a day or so before the meeting was actually scheduled to occur, we learned that the Forest Service had reneged on that notion of accepting additional public comments. So it was a listening session, but they are not accepting any additional public comment on the Buffalo Springs proposal. However, one of the things I submitted to them at the meeting was a documented incidents of a threatened, uh, excuse me, an endangered species, extremely rare in Indiana, something called the Eastern Wandering Spider has been uh, positively identified as inhabiting the Buffalo Springs area. So if there's anything that should require them to include additional information in the public record, it would be the discovery of an endangered species living in the project area. So hopefully that will, at least that piece of information will get in the project area and require at least a certain amount of additional study and analysis. But the reality is, and I, your listeners should know this, is that the recent ruling by Judge Tanya Walton Pratt on the Houston South Project, which of course was a major threat to Lake Monroe and to the water quality of the people of Monroe and Brown County, her ruling for the Forest Service, or it was a preliminary injunction that she that she issued in response to their failure to do adequate water quality analysis for Lake Monroe, applies at least as much to Buffalo Springs because it's a larger project and it's much more uh, immediate in its impact of the Potoka Lake watershed because of much of the logging and burning occurring right in the immediate watershed on steep slopes that feed directly into. To the into the lake so there are recent developments on the houston south project that have a direct bearing on the buffalo springs project and i believe it's my perception is that the forest service is going to have a hard time proceeding with either of those projects without further uh, uh, annoying the judge and that is a federal judge and yes federal district court for southern indiana so far that's applying to that houston south but it, it it doesn't apply to the rest of the plan for, for Hoosier National Forest? No, 
No, unfortunately it doesn't. And uh, and there's two things to note with respect to the Hoosier National Forest and the plan is one is that they are doing wholesale burning all across the Hoosier National Forest. And I'm not sure when they authorize that burning, but it's happening in virtually every county. Uh, and I'll get back to that if you'd like to talk about why they're doing all this burning, but that's a very grave concern to a lot of the people who live immediately adjacent to those areas that are being burned. Obviously, air quality issues, kids with asthma, uh, health safety, but also the largest fire in the history of the state of New Mexico was caused by a so-called controlled burn that got out of control and burned over 50 square miles, consumed something like 400 homes, killed thousands of domestic and wild animals and polluted water supplies in the water-starved West. So these so-called control burns are a great concern here in Indiana. Obviously, we have a much wetter forest, but like I say, we can get back to that in a moment. But the more pressing issue now is that uh, one of the things that happened yesterday is we, I believe, there was a pivot where we've been working hard to protect our area, the Buffalo Springs area, but yesterday, the pivot shifted from the Buffalo Springs area to the entire Hoosier National Forest, because while they refuse to reopen or accept additional comment on the Buffalo Springs proposal, they have now formally initiated a new planning process for the Hoosier National Forest. That was something that was sort of suggested in a meeting we had with uh, Senator Braun and Undersecretary Wilkes back in July. But yesterday, they made it clear that this meeting yesterday was not so much about buffalo springs as it was the first listening session in the planning process for a new plan for the hoosier national forest so what we have to do is try to get the forest service to suspend all these other activities which were based on an old and illegal plan from 2006 and suspend all this forest disturbing planet warming activity until we have a new plan that at least acknowledges the reality of climate change. The plan that they are using from 2006, not only does it barely mention or acknowledge climate change, it was issued before scientists even became aware of something called white nose syndrome, which has caused dramatic and precipitous declines in bat populations throughout their range, but in particular here in southern Indiana, where uh, bat populations of some of these species have declined by 95% since 2006 because of white-nose syndrome. It was, of course, issued before the emerald ash borer became a problem and almost eliminated ash trees from the national forest. There's so many things have changed since 2006, and yet they insist on developing these plans and implementing these plans based on a grotesquely backward-looking, short-sighted, and ultimately self-serving plan. And we've also had some drought since then as well. Well, we have. Well, what they're proposing to do is they are literally, this is what they said in their, uh, in their documents, is that they are proposing to convert the Hoosier National Forest from a fire-resistant forest to a fire-adapted forest. And of course, to those of us who live next to the forest, that is grave concern. And so does it look like you're going to uh, have to go these injunction routes or does this new process envelop Buffalo Springs? Well, that's a good question. And the the short answer is we, we don't know. I believe that the tide has turned. I believe the Forest Service doesn't know it yet. And 
they are going to continue to try and push forward over public objection, over court injunction, over the global scientific consensus on global warming, and over what is actually in the best interest of the forest itself to pursue their own selfish uh, organizational and administrative budgetary priorities. And that is the essence of what we are talking about here. These are not bad people doing bad things for bad reasons. They are people who consider themselves good people. They think they're doing good things and they think they have good reasons, but in fact, they're good people who are doing bad things for bad reasons. And uh, we would like for the public to have an opportunity to be heard because if you are hiring somebody to manage your forest, the first thing they're supposed to do is ask you how you want your forest managed. But the Forest Service doesn't do that. They think they know better than the international global scientific consensus. They think they know better than the courts. They think they know better than the people who pay their salary. And most arrogant of all, they think they know better than the forest itself, what should be growing on any particular acre within the public ownership. And it does call into question whether it's actually going on in good faith if there isn't really transparency or uh, enough attempts to involve the public in, in that's absolutely right and here's something else your listeners should know and that is that the forest service this is right on page two of the 2006 forest plan they make it very clear that when they use the term the forest as in something is in the best interest of the forest that term the forest applies equally to the land they manage and to the agency itself now, back in the early days of the Forest Service, those two things were much in alignment. What the Forest Service was doing was they were planting trees, they were putting out fires, and they were preventing timber theft. Nowadays, what the Forest Service is doing is clear-cutting the trees they planted, setting the forest on fire, and cutting down the public's trees and keeping the money. So when they say something is in the best interest of the forest, you have to assume that they are talking about the Forest Service. And everything that they're proposing is to the financial benefit of the Forest Service. When they cut down the trees on the public land, they keep the money. It doesn't go back to the taxpayers. It doesn't go back to the Treasury. It goes into the Forest Service administrative budget. They have become dependent on the revenues they get from cutting down the trees, which is why I do not anticipate any change from the Forest Service, because sadly, there's a system of incentives that has been put in place by the Congress over the years, members of Congress who had major contributions from the timber industry that gave the Forest Service an incentive to release as much timber from the public land as possible by allowing them to keep the money from the sale and then the timber industry would get the timber. Now that applied mostly to the forests out west in the legislative intent, but that application of that legislative intent applies to every forest in the country, including the Hoosier. The financial incentive on fire is even more perverse. In response to those huge catastrophic, devastating fires out west that consumed entire towns, took lives, killed lots and lots of wildlife and domestic animals that uh, disrupted uh, homes, disrupted communities, and, and destroyed dreams. Those fires, we all saw them playing out in real time in response to catastrophic drought, thousands of years worth of, you know, the worst droughts in thousands of years, then uh, epic wind events, 60 mile an hour winds on top of a, you know, a multi-year drought causing fires that cannot be put out. Everybody needs to recognize that. And certainly everybody who was paying attention knew that there was no way to put out the fires. 
Now, the Forest Service was able to use those fires to get Congress to write them virtually a blank check for fire suppression. It's an inside joke in the Forest Service. You get one of those catastrophic fires that cannot be put out. What you do is you throw money at it until it rains. Well, Congress gave them a lot of money to throw at those fires, but they did not dictate how and where that money should be spent. So while that money was appropriated by Congress to deal with the catastrophic fires out west, the majority of the dollars Congress appropriated for fire are actually being used to set fires in the American South and East, two areas that do not have the historic fire regimes that the forests of the West do, but they are using the money that Congress appropriated to put out fires to burn every national forest in the country. So every national forest in the country has a fire target that they have to meet in order to spend those dollars, because if there's one thing a federal bureaucracy does not like to do, it's to leave money on the table. So those fires I mentioned in New Mexico, a subsequent investigation determined that the reason those fires got out of control is that they burned in unsafe conditions in order to meet timber targets so that that money could be spent before the end of the fiscal year. They were driven, those fires were driven by the incentive to burn. The Forest Service has, Congress has given the Forest Service money to burn, money to burn. And tragically, we are spending millions of taxpayer dollars in a time of a global planetary crisis, climate crisis, to set our forests on fire, releasing huge quantities of carbon dioxide, destroying and damaging ecosystems, and wasting vast quantities of money just because. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshallek. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Wildflower Weekend is taking place at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, April 8th and Sunday, April 9th. Workshops, hikes, and fun activities are scheduled each day. To see the full schedule, go to the DNR calendar website. Join Anthony at the Donaldson Cave parking lot in Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, April the 8th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. for a full pink moon hike. You will hike Trail 7, which is 2.25 miles long, as you learn the history and folklore of the full pink moon. Join native plant and fungi guru David Moe for a guided tour of Porter West Preserve in Monroe County on Wednesday, April 12th from 10 a.m. to noon. This is a Sycamore Land Trust event. To participate, go to sycamorelandtrust.org to register. 
A Salt Creek wildflower hike is scheduled at Monroe Lake at the U.S. Army Corps Overlook on Thursday, April the 13th from noon to 2 p.m. It is one of the best locations to see spring wildflowers in bloom at Monroe Lake. It is especially known for its white blooming Virginia bluebells. Sign up at bit.ly slash saltcreekflowers-2023. Join the Bedford Hiking Club for a 5 to 10K Folks March at Morgan Monroe State Forest on Saturday, April 15th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Contact Tina Ligman at 812-278-0139 to register. for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Juliana Daly. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Noel Gerhusky Schneider. Juliana Daly assembled the script and was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noel Gerhusky Schneider produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshallack. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org.